This is your Wednesday Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand, but really, it could be any other day based on how the Twins game went last night because that was just the same game we've seen. Almost every uh, every loss this season has felt almost exactly the same way. We'll get to that a little bit more here in just a minute, and we'll talk some Timberwolves as well. Got some fun, uh, a fun guest today, Jeff Munich from the Timberwolves, um, telling some KG stories. Kevin Garnett going to be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Remember, he was part of the class of 2020, uh, but the induction got pushed back uh, a year because of COVID. He's he's getting his finally getting his due, and I got Jeff Munich on, longtime Timberwolves employee. He's been there since the start, been there more than three decades. Has seen. You know, his share of uh, ups and downs, a lot of downs, but the, the KG era, definitely a big part of uh, of what's been good there. And he's got some good, uh, good fun stories from, from you know, his memories of Kevin Garnett. But first, as I teased in the jump, what did I miss? Yeah, same Twins game we've seen over and over and over and over and over again, except this one hurt in particular because... Well, it's against the White Sox, right? They go in. They go into that game seven games back in the division already, fading fast with a with a bad start. But this is a chance to regroup, right? You got three against the White Sox. You got come home for Oakland, and then you get three more against the White Sox. Good competition, but you know teams that if you want to be considered among the top teams in the American League, these are teams you have to beat. And chance to move up, gain ground on Chicago. Great start, right? They get out to a three nothing lead. Um, you know, put together, piece together an inning in the second. So, you know, they're up 3 nothing. They got Kenta Maeda out there. Your, your ace from last year, second in, second in the Cy Young voting last year. He gives it right back in the bottom of the second. Uh, Three-run home run. So right there, you, you're just back to back to square one. So that's disappointing, right? Maeda, I, I don't want to let him off the hook because he, he's been disappointing this season. He knows it. Um, you know, it's, it's not been like a, a complete disaster. He's given them, you know, a chance to win, I guess, in in a lot of his starts, but definitely not, you know, ace material. Not going seven innings, not working deep into ball games with low run counts. Not not saying, okay, we're not going to lose tonight. I'm going to pitch us to a, the brink of victory. No, he gives it all right back. So that's a problem. That's happened before this season too, where you know, a Twins veteran, a Twins pitcher who you want more from, just gives a lead right back. So that's a problem. Three three, but he starts to sail. He starts to cruise um, in the you know third inning, fourth inning, fifth inning. Gets through that pretty quickly. His pitch count had been high, but he got got to got through five. Still three to three. Eighty seven pitches thrown. He gets lifted. You now we shouldn't be surprised at this point. That's just kind of how this season has been managed. Um, organizational philosophy, Rocco Baldelli, Rocco Baldelli philosophy. They've been lifting pitchers generally, you know, when they get into that high 80s zone, and I get it, right? They're, they're trying to protect pitchers. They're still worried about the cumulative effect of not pitching all that much last season. But I, when when does what, what's the statute of limitations on that? When when do you let a guy who's cruising, who's only thrown 87 pitches, who's you know already loose, already you know has been throwing? When do you let him get at least a couple more outs, get through six innings, uh, take some of the pressure off of a beleaguered bullpen. But anyway, I digress. I, you know, we're not going to split that splitting hairs, 87 pitches. Fine. He takes them out. You, you should be able to go to the bullpen at that point and expect some level of reasonable production. But again, these are the twins. They go to the bullpen. Nothing happens. They, they get, you know, Jorge Alcala is the first call out of the pen. Um, 
He's been good in low leverage situations this season. I think he's got a great arm. I think, you know, he's got a future in the bullpen. Maybe it was kind of nice to see, you know, nice to find out at some point what he can do in in higher leverage situations. But I'm not sure that the game on Tuesday was the time to find that out because every single relief pitcher you have was available in that game. You don't have the excuse of tired arms. They had had a scheduled off day. They'd had a rain out two days off in a row, a rarity in any Major League Baseball season that basically resets your bullpen. Everybody should have been available. First pitcher out of the bullpen in the sixth inning is Alcala. I just, I don't know about that. I just don't know. I don't know the wisdom of that. I don't know why that that's. I don't know why that's the first move. I, I just don't really get it. Um, as good as his arm is, and he gives up a two-run homer, predictably, right? We, we've talked through all of the all of the foibles of all of the the, the criticisms we've we've had of of how they've deployed the bullpen. But I thought uh, my friend Tim had a had a good had a good tweet. It says every button Rocco pushes this year is exactly the self-destruct button. Not saying he's blameless, but at some point, someone has to actually pitch well. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Like he, he, the, the decisions he's made look worse in hindsight because they haven't worked. Um, if Alcala goes out and pitches a clean sixth, you're like, okay, yeah. And now maybe now they found their, their, their sixth inning guy, their bridge guy. He's got better stuff. And it's that it doesn't work. And then they go field bar after that. And I guess field bar has been pretty good this year. Fine. Um, that doesn't work though. He gives up a couple runs. Derek Law, you know, by that point the game's kind of out of reach. So just strange to me, I guess that in a in a game with a lot of meaning, the three relievers that end up getting used are those three. You don't see Tyler Duffy, who I know has struggled some. I wrote about that in, in Tuesday StarTribune.com. How Duffy, Colome, and Stashak in particular have struggled, and a lot of it's been breaking ball use and breaking ball command, but. Just strange that that was the the pitcher mix in this case uh, in, in a big game. Last part of this is the offense. They score three runs in the second inning. Don't score again the rest of the game. You know what? They have scored three or fewer runs now in 20 of their 33 games this season. That's about 60% of the games where they're scoring three or fewer runs. They are 3-17 and 17 in those games. 3-17. and 17. That's not getting it done. Um, we can't let the offense off the hook. They, they, they've, di- they've been disappointing. I know their OPS as a team is, I think, tied for seventh in the majors right now. So on paper, they look like they're getting it done. But a lot of that's come in pile-on games where they're you know blowout wins. In these close games, they have not added on, especially it feels like late in games when they really need the offense to come around. So again, microcosm game, right? The pitching the starting pitching doesn't go deep enough and doesn't get it done. The offense doesn't add on, and the bullpen messes up, and it adds up to twenty, you know, twenty-one losses. Twelve and twenty-one is the record this season. You are what your record says you are. We'll see if they can do any better Wednesday night and Thursday afternoon. But at this point, the formula has been pretty pretty well established, and it is not a pretty one. We need to talk a minute now about the Timberwolves too. Um, one against Detroit, not necessarily surprising. Detroit has been making a business out of losing lately, 119 to 100 in that game. Here's the thing I kind of crossed my mind as I was thinking about the opening. Um, Twins have a winning percentage of 364 at this point this season. The Wolves have a winning percentage of 319 at this point this season. But if you asked about the trajectory of these teams, um, everybody is much more optimistic about the Wolves right now. So much matters about expectations 
so much matters about the order of the wins and losses. Wolves, I think, 15 and 18 now since the All-Star break. Not exactly lighting the world on fire still, but you know, in their last 10 games, I think they're you know they're winning more than they're losing. So it's very much what have you done for me lately kind of business in terms of who you are most optimistic about. But the Wolves do get that win. They vault ahead of several teams now. They are sixth from the bottom now in the uh, in the lottery standings. Not that they're that's not what they're playing for. They're playing to win. Um, Chris Finch, head coach, had a good quote about why that is exactly. I want to play that for you right now. I'm 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 confident that guys are going to you know go into the off season with a bounce in their step, feeling pretty good about what you know what they have around them. Um, and we have a lot of work to do. That's not to say we don't, but it, it gives us great hope for uh, you know for where we want to go. But yeah, three games left in the regular season for the Wolves and a lot of the other teams that are uh, that are you know below them now in the standings, above them in the lottery standings. But what this does though is you know gives them a, still about a twenty eight percent chance of getting uh, a top three pick, which is which is what they would keep if they if they retain the pick from the Golden State trade, the you know the the Wiggins Russell trade we've talked so much about. Um, but uh, what it does in particular is it decreases the chance that that pick is going to be really a premium pick for Golden State. Let's say the Wolves do stay in this spot, that none of the teams jump up above them. They've been so determined to lose. They've all, they're have all they all on losing streaks. Um, hard for me to imagine one of them is going to you know purposely win at this point now that they've worked so hard to be down in the lottery standing. So if, 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 if these records hold, the Wolves would have a 27.6% chance of keeping their top three pick only a 9.6% chance that the pick conveys at number four to Golden State. Remember, it's a top three protected. Can't be the number five pick because you can't go from six to five. If, you're, if your lottery slot is six, you can't drop down to five. You can only jump into the top four. 8.6% chance that it stays at number six. And then everything else is seven through 10 at that point. So 10% chance roughly that it's a number four pick. 9% chance that it's the number six pick. A much better chance now that this pick conveys to Golden State if the Wolves don't keep it, that it comes in, you know, seven. the number seven pick is most likely around 30%, number eight pick, 20%, and then it gets, you know, lower than that. But it could go as low as number 10. So what the Wolves effectively have done by winning is, yeah, they've decreased their odds a little bit. They've also made it far less likely that this is going to hurt really bad uh, when they give this pick up, if they if they end up giving it up, it will be more likely to be you know in that seven or eight range, which is still a high pick, but not quite as painful as you know when they had the worst record and it looked like if they didn't keep the pick, it was going to be the number four or number five pick. That that pick value maybe doesn't matter in the long run to the Wolves organization, but optically, it definitely does matter. I'm Nyla Jean Myers, senior assistant sports editor at the Star Tribune. Thank you for listening to Strip Sports Daily Delivery. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast and our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Happy to have Jeff Munichie on today, longtime executive with the Timberwolves, works with fan experience, and has been there pretty much from the start, right, Jeff? Yeah, actually, I go back to day one. Uh, so I was hired June 20 of 1988. So I was the initial group of 35 staff members that were hired uh, during our inaugural season, actually 18 months before we ever played our first game. I'm the last one standing, believe it or not. So uh, they've allowed me to hang around a little bit longer. And now today we have about 170 people on staff. So the sports industry has dramatically changed. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. That's that's amazing. Um 
well, being there from the start has its uh, has its bumps in the road, but one of the you know probably the the signature moment in uh, in this franchise's evolution, really, even as we think about it now, was the drafting of Kevin Garnett in 1995 and just what he meant to this organization. You know, for so many years, you know, eight straight playoff appearances, getting to the Western Conference Finals in 2004. Kevin Garnett, part of a you know induction ceremony this weekend in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, that's actually the class of 2020, but you remember last year's class that was post the enactment postponed because of COVID. That's actually the, the the ceremony happening this weekend. So I wanted to have Jeff on just to just remembering you know kind of the the what he remembers about the Kevin Garnett era and any particular stories, Jeff, you might have, we can start there. Like as you, as you think about Kevin Garnett, you know, in his evolution with the team and even coming back a second time in the energy that brought what, what springs to mind just immediately when I say Kevin Garnett, Timberwolves. Yeah. Number one, thanks for having me on Michael. I'm really honored that you'd have me come on and talk about KG and obviously his influence on the organization, the city and the community. I mean, it's just immense. So, you know, you go back to you, even upon drafting him, you know, the way the story goes is that there are rumors that a high school kid was going to go into the draft. And you got to remember it was a long time from the last time of Bill Willoughby going from high school into the NBA draft, the Atlanta Hawks. And I think at the time, you know, obviously we didn't have a ton of wins. And so the thought was, oh my goodness, we can't draft a high school kid. Can we? So I think even Kevin McHale and Flip at the time were just like, boy, I don't know. You know, we're going to have to go with a more established guy. And you're thinking Rasheed Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse and some of these guys. So some of our scouts had a chance to go watch Kevin play at Farragut. And they came back and were telling all the basketball operations guys just saying, look, this kid is going to be unbelievable. We got to consider taking him. So I think with Kevin and Flip, the way the story goes, they're just like, no, I can't do it. You know, just, you know, I, I don't I don't think that's right at this point. We got to advance our organization a little bit quicker. And then Kevin and Flip had a chance to go see him work out. And then I think it became basically a charade to convince all the other teams in the NBA that we're going to draft Rasheed Wallace so we can take Garnett number five. And sure enough, that's what happened. Rasheed goes four to Portland. We get KG at five. And the fortunes of our organization change almost immediately. You just saw the enthusiasm and the energy that Kevin brought immediately upon coming into camp. I mean, here's a 19-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid, and the enthusiasm and the passion, the excitement he brought, I think was probably pretty alarming to some of our existing players. And just the intensity that it brought in just at a young kid was just was just crazy. And so it changed our fortunes forever. And he, you know, he comes in and you're, you know, you're in charge, obviously, of I can't remember what your role or your specific title would have been at the time, but I mean, you're, you've been mostly engaged on the fan experience side. When you have someone like that, suddenly when you've, you've been through so many losing seasons, hasn't been a ton to get excited about, you know, franchise wise, except for, Hey, Hey, we have a team now. Um, what does that do for the fan base? What does that do for your ability to go out and say, Hey, look, you're going to, you're going to want to come see this guy. Yeah, you know, I, I think probably a lot of our fans at the time, you know, this is a long time ago. This is back in the mid-90s now. And so probably a lot of fans were just saying, boy, a high school kid, I don't know, you know, just hopefully it works. And it certainly did. And I think I think what KG brought to our fans was it became personal for our fans. So the passion for the game and how contagious he was with the fans and, and related to him. If you remember back in the day, he would find a way to include everybody in the arena. So he's, you know, he's pounding on his chest. He's pointing at different corners of the arena. 
you know, whether you sat in courtside or whether you sat in section 104, row Q, or 217, row P, he was pointing at you somewhere. And I think every single fan just said, he just looked at me. He just pointed at me. So they'd be pointing back. They'd fist bump each other in the stands. And so I think what he brought is just personal passion. And I think for the fans growing up with that, I just think about all the funny stuff right. and all the things that he brought to our organization where suddenly you saw young kids wearing the wristbands with his number on them. Uh, the, the rubber wristband, he used to just get, you know, had just a plain rubber wristband long before it became Vogue to get the printed on uh, wristbands. He just had a rubber wristband and supposedly the way uh, he'd do things, if he, if he felt he's messing up, he'd snap the, the rubber band on his wrist and kind of snap them back into what he needed to do. So me as some young 30, 40 year old guy, I started wearing a rubber band on my wrist. I thought it was cool. So, and then pretty soon all our fans are wearing them, season ticket members are wearing them. So we started, you know, actually making rubber bands. And in fact, uh, his, his, uh, his wife at the time, Brandy started a company uh, that had some of the slogans that KG had on. And so we started using those as premium items to give the fans as well. But then you, if you remember the finger splint, nobody wore a finger splint at the time. Every once in a while, that finger splint uh, would fly off his hand and fly in the crowd. And so that was like gold bullion for any fan that would happen to catch that finger splint. And I remember kids kind of dummying up little popsicle sticks and band-aids and stuff to make a, a KG's finger splint. It was so cool. And our equipment manager, Clayton, at the time, uh, he, you know, I, I don't think you could hardly keep them in stock. They're always going through them so quick. But that was pretty cool. And just all the things he brought to the fans, they wanted to be included. I remember one thing I remember about him that was really almost it made me laugh or smile every time but it was also kind of alarming was sometimes when he would miss a free throw he would pound the basketball on his head did that was that organizationally did someone have to tell him kg stop doing that because you could really hurt yourself yeah i'm sure some of the wiley vets terry porter sam mitchell some of the guys would just say hey kevin cool it there was just the, the there's no throttle that he's going to turn off he was that way in practice in a shooting game running sprints there's just no throttling that back. And that's what made him special. So you know, the, the other thing that I, I've been thinking about this since yeah. we decided we're going to chat it a little bit here this morning was he made being a Timberwolves fan cool. And so you think of the divergence of, of the musical influence in town. You think about First Avenue and Prince and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and other recording stars coming to town. Suddenly there's that convergence of music and basketball KG really made being a Timberwolves fan cool, whether it's the baggy shorts, the wristbands, the finger splints that I talked about, but also the musical portion to it as well. Suddenly, we have sitting courtside Janet Jackson. Suddenly, we have Aerosmith sitting courtside. Suddenly, we have movie stars and different people coming to games just say, hey, I want to check out this kid. I want to check out this organization. In fact, I went to a Janet, Jan Janet Jackson concert thinking it's might, might be 1997, 98. I might, might get my years mixed up a little bit, but I'll never forget it. So Janet Jackson sees KG in the crowd and she brings him up on stage and the place went nuts. It was so cool. So that was the influence he had, not just on the basketball court, but in the community. Now he, you know, obviously the team starts winning more when he's there, but they haven't, you know, can't break through in the Western Conference, familiar refrain, some good teams, but you no, know, not winning playoff series until, you know, you get Sprewell, you get Sam Cassell in that 03-04 season, get to the Western Conference finals, which you and I have, have talked about. Western Conference semifinal series against the Kings was, you know, still 
Wolves fans talk about that. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a ton for this franchise to, to hang their hat on playoff-wise, but that was a moment. What do you remember from that time, especially Game 7 at Target Center that year? Yeah, that was so cool. You know, and you think about just the, the tears, you know, uh, you know, we, we get KG, we get Marbury, we trade for Googs. And so you, you set, you see that Kevin, Kevin McHale and flip put together a team that we thought was going to compete and win titles. So we make it the playoffs. We, we, we get beat by Houston, but Charles Barkley says, keep these guys together. You're going to be, you know, incredible. You're going to be stocked in Malone of the West for years, go to Seattle next year, losing five, but play them tough. We're up two one. And going back to going back to Seattle and we, we lost, but then all of a sudden it started to click and we were never favored. I think for all those nine years that we made it in consecutive years, we were, I mean, the, the conference was just loaded with San Antonio and Portland and Dallas and the Lakers, of course. But uh, you know, that, that series that you talked about, no doubt, iconic game. When you go to game seven, uh, the roof was ready to be blown off target center. And there was not a hotter ticket in town than coming to a Timberwolves game. And obviously Sacramento with C-Web and Peja and Vlade. I mean, incredible team coached by Rick Adelman, our, our future coach as well. But game seven, you know, you did not want to miss a second. The poor concession stand workers that night, I mean, it had, it had to be the loneliest place in target center because nobody was leaving a seat. You did not want to miss a second. I remember for myself specifically, I was just thinking, where can I go watch? You know, I, I just didn't want to miss anything either. So all the issues and problems that we sort through on a night to night basis and, you know, glad handing with our fans and getting a chance to build relationships. I just kept thinking, I got to find me a little nook and cranny so I'm going to watch. So I found a spot right in front of a media table, right in front of Dan Barrero. I'll never forget this. And so he probably had to look at the top of my melon all, all night, but it, it was just low enough where I didn't obstruct him. I remember he and I were high-fiving and having a great time. And when C-Web had that look over in the corner and, oh, no, you know, it just spins out. And the despair that C-Web had, but then the excitement that we all had. And the, it was so loud in the arena and fans want to hug you and high-five you and KG's up in the scorer's table and, you know, just, I mean, just the joy in downtown Minneapolis that night. Uh, it had to be a really good gig to be a bartender that night because I think drinks were flowing. <laughs> For sure. And he had, what, 32 points, I think 21 rebounds, bunch of blocks that night. I mean, he was, it was an 83 to 80 game too. I mean, that's like middle, middle of the third quarter these days, but uh, that's. Yeah, you know, and if you remember that game, Michael, it was just every possession was, you know, just solid gold. I mean, you did not want to make a mistake. And I, I the thing that gets me still chills is KG was such a great passer. And so he'd get the ball and he'd kind of palm it out, you know, over over on the right-hand side. And we'd swing the ball. He'd make a skip pass over to Fred Hoiberg. And, and the minute the pass was in the air, everybody's already up three, you know, and, and you know, chanting and yelling three. And it was just – Boy, I just get chills thinking about it. And obviously, that was the you know the the biggest moment that you lose to the Lakers in the you know in the conference finals. Cassell is hurt. You kind of you get the what if. A few years later, of course, KG gets traded. I feel like you know when he went to Boston, I feel like there was still a large segment of Wolves fans that was genuinely happy for him that he won a championship there, which doesn't always happen when someone gets traded from here. Did you feel that as well? 
Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and I, I think just because all the reasons that we talked about before, uh, it was personal. It was personal for our fans, and it was a personal relationship with him. And he made you be included in that. So, you know, I think as disappointed as our fans were that he was no longer, you know, winning games here and part of our organization, I think they're really happy for him that he got his title. And still to this day, I mean, we still we still see a lot of KG jerseys coming through the coming through the gates every night. He comes back, um, you know, towards the tail end of his career. Flip brings him back. Um, he's he's here for parts of two seasons. Um, I still thought he was one of their better players those years. Just to you know, even put him in the starting lineup, let him set a defensive tone. But you could tell, like when he came back, people were that first game that he came back. Um, feel like the energy all over again. You guys hadn't had a whole lot to cheer about at that point either. But you know, how did it feel when he came back? Yeah, that, that I'll, I'll never forget this. And so, um, you know, Flip, uh, who I was really close with for all our years, the Timberwolves, um, he loved it. We always called it taking the temperature. And so he'd always come into my office, close the door. He is always curious what the fans were thinking. And so he always had that in mind, in, in the back of his mind. If, if I make this move or I make a decision, what do the fans think? And I, w- I always love to hear his different stories and the, the different things that he's thinking about. And so I'll never forget it. He came into my office one day, closed the door. He goes, what do you think about getting KG back? I said, flip, come on. You know, no way. He goes, no. He says, it's going to happen. He said, and here's how it's going to work. I couldn't believe it. He goes, you can't tell a soul. I think he told a couple other people, but I, I was pretty good. I, I kept it zipped uh, for a couple of days and then we announced that it was going to happen. And so, of course, the organization is giddy. The staff is giddy. We're bringing back the most iconic figure in our history and in maybe Minneapolis history as well, along with Kirby Puckett. And so it was so fun when, when, when we had that press conference. And I'm sure you're there on the Skyway level of Target Center. And he came walking up and, you know, Sid Hartman is down bowing to him in front, in front of the, the, the podium. And then we got a chance to just interact with him a little bit when he came through the office. So I was sitting in my office and he poked his head. He goes, I heard you're still here. So that, that was his way of acknowledging that, uh, you know, hey, we, we had a little something, you know, so that was cool. Got a chance to uh, talk with him a couple minutes, but that first game when we actually got to announce him in the starting intros and obviously had the video tribute, uh, tribute and, and the, 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 just the energy level. I don't know if I've ever heard the building this loud up and up after game seven of Sacramento, you know, when he got introduced again, and just for him to play well right off the bat and men start mentoring Carl Towns and Andrew Wiggins and Zach Levine. Um, I mean, is unbelievable as a leader. And then, then also one of my favorite moments in Timberwolves history too, is that John Sweeney, Jiggly Boy, uh, we reenact the Jiggly Boy and, you know, we, we, we rolled him out during one of the intros or during one of the quarter breaks, I should say. And KG noticed it. And, and literally he's pointing to him and he's laughing and, that just solidified, I think, the relationship back with the fans again. Awesome. Any final, uh, any final KG stories? Jeff Munichy, thank you uh, for coming on Daily Delivery. Anything else that stands out to you as, as he gets prepared to get his, uh, get his due in the, uh, with the induction this weekend? Yeah, obviously, we're just so proud and so excited for him and well-deserved and, and uh, just could not be more excited that, that he did make the haul. You know, and we, we got a chance to experience the KG experience for, for many, many years and could not be more excited for him and his family. And, you know, it's just all the different things he did for the organization, you know, whether it's, you know, goofy promotions or uh, do, uh, goofy premium items. You think about, you know, the fun police video that he did and that he insisted on bringing teammates along. Um, 
you know, he would not do the Craig Kilborn show without uh, Sam and Spree being allowed to, to come along. Um, you know, the SI cover, he insisted in Sam and Spree being on the SI cover. Um, you know, one, one kind of funny story too is uh, we came up with this idea is the first year he and Stefan Marbury decided they're going to shave their head. And so we said, well, okay, so if they're shaving their head, well, let's maybe see if we can do a promotion over in city center and any fans that shave their head, we'll give them two tickets to a game. Well, because I was involved in the process, KG finds this out. So I'm over there on the side and I'm watching this whole thing go down and, and he comes over, he goes, he goes, Hey, I heard this is your idea. I said, Oh, I was involved. He goes, you're shaving your head then. Said, oh, <laughs> That's okay, great. I'm good. He goes, no, no, no. Right now we're doing this. So KG actually took the razor to my head and he actually bicked my head. So I was completely bald thanks to KG. So I tried to grow out a Fu Manchu, but it ended up being like a Larry Bird mustache is really, really bad looking. So my hair is growing back a little bit. So excited for him, so proud of him, and so so uh, glad that we got to experience uh, the, the KG experience for all those years. Absolutely. Jeff Unicky, great stuff, great stories. Appreciate you joining Daily Delivery today. And uh, yeah, good luck down the down the road as we uh, as you guys hopefully find uh, find the next KG, all right? Yeah, it's coming along. We're starting to win some games. It's good. Looking forward to finishing off the season and starting the link season. And I'm, I'm sure I'll see you down at Target Center, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Jeff. Take care. Let's end with the cooler quick. Brett Favre apparently owes the state of Mississippi $600,000 that he needs to repay uh, for speaking engagements that he never showed up at. Um, this was part of an audit that was uh, done a couple of years back, and now he he's given back some of the money, but he hasn't repaid $600,000. And if, if Brett's having money problems, here's my suggestion. Um, Vikings have... You know, Kirk Cousins firmly entrenched as the starter this season, but uh, you know, Kellen Mond, kind of an inexperienced backup. Brett needs the money. Maybe, uh, maybe the old gunslinger should should call up the Vikings and see if he could uh, he could give it <laughs> one more go. I can't even say that with a straight face. But Brett, Brett, pay back the money um, that you owe. Uh, that that it's only uh, it's only right with all you've made in your NFL career. That'll do it for today. Thanks for joining me here on Daily Delivery. Good show coming up on Thursday. We'll do uh, a lot of Lynx talk. Their season starts on Friday. We'll take a spin through a Kirk Cousins story that caught my eye the other day about him being a dark horse MVP candidate. And maybe we'll talk about NFL schedule a little bit as well. Thanks for listening today. We'll see you again on Thursday. I'm Michael Rand.